No, I broke the mic. Okay, it's going to work. Literally, I'm putting it on, and the, the wires were stripping. I was like, well, I broke it. My last day, breaking the mic. Don't worry. These things are only like 600 bucks. It's fine. Special offering later. Uh, yeah, so let's just get something out of the way, right? This is my last Sunday. So um, last Sunday, preaching as your lead pastor. Um, I don't think it'll be my last time preaching. I'll leave that up to the elders. But um, So this is significant for me. I want to I thank you for letting me be your pastor for the last seven years. I want to thank you for extending grace uh, and kindness where I haven't done that um, as well as I could have or should have. I want to thank you for the encouragement and the generosity that you've shown to me and my family. Uh, over these seven years, it has been my privilege. Uh, I love this church. I love pastoring you all. As I said when I resigned, uh, I wasn't looking to leave. Uh, didn't have an app out. Wasn't, um, wasn't trying to escape. Um, the Lord has called me into a different ministry role uh, for this next season, and that brings me a lot of peace. Um, it really does. Uh, there, there is some emotion today, but honestly, I am at peace, and I am excited uh, about the future of our church because, because I believe the Lord has called me. That, and sometimes that's all you get, right? You just got to know that the Lord's called you, and you just got to trust him with the results. But I'm really grateful that I actually I, I don't have to live in a ton of faith because I'm already like getting to see what he has for our future uh, here at the church. Like I am sincerely thrilled that he has brought Pastor Chad and Pastor Caleb to be the pastors of the Journey Church going forward. I love both of those men, respect them, and am eager to follow them personally. So I'm excited for them to be your pastor, but I'm also excited for them to be my pastors. And that's true. Like, I'm just shifting over. Uh, into, I'm still a member of the journey to Illinois and uh, just shifting over and they will now be my pastors. And so I am, I'm sincerely excited. I believe with all my heart that you all are getting an upgrade. Um, and, and I mean that I'm excited about these men, the, the gifts uh, and the wisdom and just the, the passion that God has put in them for, for the gospel, for the kingdom and for the work here at the journey. And I truly believe that they are going to serve us well the next season, and so I'm, I'm sincerely blessed that I've been able to see that. It would have been much harder for me to just have, have had my last day and not being sure what was next for the church. Uh, I would have still had to do it, uh, but that would have been much more difficult. And so I'm grateful that the Lord has given me that kindness and grace to, to, to know and to see what, what the future uh, holds for our leadership, and I'm excited to submit to them and, and, and move over and join you uh, as, as members. So um, Okay, that's enough of that. Y'all, let's go to John 9. This is my favorite story in the Gospels. I think it's my favorite story in the whole Bible. I don't know if it's my favorite chapter because there's some good stuff in some of the epistles. But as far as a narrative story, this is my favorite one. Um, since we started preaching through the book of John, I've had my eye on this passage, eager to, to, uh, to preach it. And then whenever I realized, oh, I'm going to be resigning, I was like, I don't think I'm going to get to John 9. Uh, I don't think I'm going to get to preach it. And... Um, and then just in the, the God's providence and sovereignty and the way the church calendar has, the preaching calendar has laid out, this is just my last Sunday by date, what makes sense with Caleb starting and with me rolling off. And what, what does it happen to be? The, the text that we're up to preach next is John chapter 9. And so I'm just taking that as a wink from the Lord. 
And, and it seriously gives me more peace to know that, that that's the kind of things that he's just dropping in there so that I know that he's in this and um, in every way, not just for my life, but for the life of the church going forward. So I am blessed to get to uh, wrap up the season as lead pastor by preaching this passage because I love it. So let's go. John chapter 9. I'm going to read it and then we'll pray and we'll jump into it. As I read it, I want you to hear it in the context of of John in general, but specifically, Caleb got us back into John last week with the last uh, half of chapter 8, and, and I want you to hear this story in that context. I'm, I'm not completely sure if, if, you know, it's literally and chronologically, you know, right after Jesus leaves the temple at the end of chapter 8, if, if that very present moment he goes and sees this blind man, don't know. But regardless, John put them together for us intentionally to, to have an impact as we read them together. So Jesus has just wrapped up this pretty confrontational dialogue with the religious leaders about why people aren't getting it, why people are resisting his salvation because he's claiming to be salvation and they're like, no way. And, and Jesus is saying, listen, it's not an issue of me just exchanging information with you or proving my credentials. You're not believing because you don't want to believe because you have a hard heart, because you're resistant to the work of God and salvation, and it's not just them, it's us. That's what Caleb walked us through last week, that our primary issue is that we don't want to believe, that we have a, a resistance to the work of God in our life, and that he has to overcome that, that it's, as we're going to see today, like blinders coming off, that this is, uh, you'll see even more relevance next week as we wrap up chapter 9. Of, of how this is all tied together, Jesus is, is showing uh, for us um, the way that the, the darkness is not overcome, the way the light of the world shines is not just with an exchange of information, but, but with a miraculous work of God. So that's the context. Let's read chapter 9, verses 1 through 17, and you guys will, will finish the, the, the last uh, half next week. Uh, I don't know who's preaching that. One of those guys. So that's just as far as my knowledge goes. So let's read John chapter 9. It starts like this. It says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, Yeah, it is he. And others said, No, it he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. It's me. So they said to him, then how are your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus. He made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I, I don't know. They brought, to the, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind and now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he'd received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. 
So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, I uh, ask that you would come and overwhelm us with your glory, even in the midst of suffering. Uh, teach us to look for your glory. I pray that you would stir uh, as we walk through this passage. Would your Holy Spirit come and, uh, and speak through me? Lord, in spite of me, just use me as a conduit. May your word uh, have its way with us. May your spirit direct us and uh, direct my words and uh, direct our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So the climax, or the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders is moving toward a climax. And there will be times in the gospel that Jesus will dodge that. He'll go, no, this is not the time. I'm not going to pick that fight. I'm not going to let this build to a crescendo. But then there are other times where he straight up leans into it, where he may even pick the fight. And so this is one of those times where he, they're starting to get increasingly angry at him. And instead of avoiding that, he's going to lean into it. He knows this is all headed rapidly toward the cross. That's his purpose. But he has so much for us in the meantime. And so uh, sometimes Jesus kind of even picks these fights so that he can point out to us the issue with our hardness of heart and unbelief and so that he can display um, his glory, so that we could be wooed by his glory. He doesn't merely want to tell us what is true. He, by his grace, he, we're not entitled to this. Right? He doesn't owe us this, but he's going to choose to show us what is true, to show us his power, to show us his glory so that we would be drawn to him. So this real human experience here, as they're walking down the street, they see a man. Well, actually, they don't. Jesus does. Or maybe they saw him, but they didn't really see him. You catch that? It says in verse 1, and he passed by, and he saw a man blind from birth. Now, it seems as though the disciples notice that Jesus is looking at this man. And I'm guessing nobody else looks at this man. Right, this is this is the kind of man that you don't want to make eye contact with, because he's begging. This is like the the people on the street corner with a sign, and you tell your kids not to look, not to talk. Right, like you. This is the this is the man that everyone else looks away from. And yet his disciples see, must have seen that Jesus is focusing on this man. So this is our first lesson. I want you to ask yourself: Do you see? the world, and people with the eyes of Jesus? Do you, see, do you let the world matter to you the way that it matters to Jesus? Do we ask Jesus to help us see what he sees? To be drawn to what he's drawn to? Because again, this isn't the man that anyone is running toward. This is not an issue anybody wants to deal with. We can't help him. We can't fix his eyes. We can't bring him up on ourselves to take care of him, right? We can't, right? Like we can't give him enough money. There's all these reasons, right? right? We don't want to deal with this problem. And yet Jesus is drawn to him. He's, he's focused on him in such a way that his disciples notice. And it surfaces a question for them. In fact, it's a really hard question and attention that, that this man's presence brings into the disciples' minds 
and they're, they're going to ask Jesus about it. So in verse 2, the disciples say, hey, Rabbi, who sinned? This guy or his parents that he was born blind? I want you to hear what we're, we're saying here. This man was born blind, and yet they're asking, like, now you could laugh at that question a little bit because how could he have done something before he was born to be deserve, you know, to deserve to be born blind? But, but actually, they're taking one of life's hardest questions to life's creator, and they believe <clears throat> that suffering is caused as the result of sin. I'm wondering if you've met anyone like that that told you that whatever you're suffering with, uh, if you there must be it must be the result of a sin in your life. And if you would just repent, then the Lord would heal you. Uh, don't don't raise your hand, but I'm wondering if you've encountered someone like that. I remember. Uh, I remember that happening in a college, like, discipleship, like, Christian gathering thing. It had a weird name. It's called Basic Brothers and Sisters in Christ. I don't know why we name things so cornily, but we do. Uh, as Christians, it gives us a bad look. But we were gathered, and we were having this conversation, and somebody was struggling with something pretty significant in their life, and someone else confronted them in this group of people and said, well, what sin have you not repented of? And this young girl was like, I'm sorry? He was like, well, if you're sick in that way, it must be because you have sin that you haven't repented of. And it was this really terrible moment of awkwardness and really further pain for that young woman. But he believed this. He believed that, that sin, must, like this was, you know, however many years ago I was in college, but not that long ago. So we can't put too much on this, this archaic belief that's going on here because it's actually something that still pervades our mind. Whether we want to acknowledge it or not, sometimes we struggle with why, don't we? And we want to have a reason to latch on to our why. Like, why is the suffering being allowed to exist? And so they believe that, man, <clears throat> suffering is a result of sin. And so, you know, something must have happened to cause this man to be born blind. So they're asking, man, Jesus, was, was this his parents, right, because, or was this him? Because that seems crazy that he could have done something before birth in utero to be deserving of being born blind. But then at the same time, even if his parents had sinned, that seems all equally harsh to punish the child for the parents' sin. And so it brings this tension. And so they just simply ask. I think this is a tension that everybody has felt, that everyone in the community has felt when they've looked at that man, but we don't want to deal with that until it comes face-to-face -face in our life. We don't want to answer those questions, do we? We want to let them be over there and hope that we never have to really wrestle with those questions. But the disciples are confronted. Jesus is clearly, you know, focused on this man. So, hey, we got the rabbi. We got Jesus. He seems to know stuff, right? He's got, like, power, and we're... You know, we think he's the Messiah. So let's ask him. Let's ask him one of life's hardest questions. And, and this is important because this is, there's something for us here because this problem of suffering is something that has put many believers in the place of questioning God's goodness. Not just believers, but people in general. Uh, has, has caused, this problem of suffering has caused a lot of people to, to, to question whether or not God could actually be good, or whether or not God could actually be just, or whether he could actually have power, or whether he cares. And it's not wrong to have these deep questions about life, but, but here's the danger. When we try to answer those questions, 
removed from the scriptures and removed from God and his community, we try to answer those questions and, and we put God on trial outside of the scripture and in our own logic and with the world's logic and whatever we can come up with and the counsel of whatever you know, fools we can put around us. And we, we put God on trial in, away from his scripture in, in order to wonder if he's worthy for us to come back to his scripture. But that makes things way messier whenever we walk away from the Bible and start to try to answer the question about suffering before we will go back into the conversation with God. Instead, what we should actually do is exactly what the disciples do here. What do they do? Do they go over and philosophize about, you know, how could this happen and what do you think? What's your position on suffering and all this? No, they just, what do they do? His disciples did what? Verse 2. What's the next word? Not a trick. His disciples ask. They just ask Jesus. Right? They just, they just really simply ask him. Right? Uh, which is exactly what a disciple, a follower of Jesus should do. Simply ask him. He, it tells us to ask him things, to, to pray to him. He invites us, right? He tells us to lean into him. Right? And then we seek the answer from Scripture. With the, with the help of the Spirit, right? But sometimes we don't get clarity exactly the way we would like for it to, so we have to cling to what we know and also keep in mind that we're called to live by faith because even here, Jesus isn't gonna totally resolve the tension the way that we would like for him to because if he had, like, this wouldn't still be a tension because I'm not the first one to preach through John 9, right? So there's actually not quite the silver, you know, the silver bullet, like, Oh, that's beautiful and ties it up in a bow and this is why suffering. It doesn't quite happen that way. Otherwise, you would have already known about it. And yet, Jesus is still kind in his answer and he gives us what we need. Not always what we want in these questions, but what we need. And so Jesus doesn't totally resolve this tension, but he does tell them what is true. And he does put on his, he puts on display something that they're going to be able to cling to um, with what they're about to witness. So when we encounter suffering and hard things, like we get to go to Jesus. We ask and we lean into his answer. We cling to what we, what we do know and we trust him for what we don't know. And Jesus says this, it's not that this man sinned or his parents. In other words, Jesus says this blindness, this specific suffering, that you're referring to. It's not owing to the specific sins of the parents or the man. Jesus says, don't look there for the explanation. You're wondering why, but it's not going to be in specifics with this man or his parents. He tells them, don't look there. That's not, you're not going to find this cause and effect the way that you would like, but he is going to tell them where to look. He says, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but what? That the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus shifts their focus from questioning this, okay, what caused this, to rather, what good is this? What purpose is this going to have? Um, so he says, look for an explanation not in the why, but in the purpose. Look for an explanation not in how did this happen and why and what caused this, but rather what is God going to do through this? And he just simply says, it's that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the explanation for the blindness lies not in past causes, but rather in future purposes. 
Now, listen, that sounds great when you're reading this, and it took us a couple minutes to read this story. But this man is an adult. We don't know exactly how old, but old enough to be of age because there's a fantastic exchange coming in the, the, the rest of the chapter where they ask this guy questions. So we're talking about a significant life that has been lived in blindness. So don't dismiss this as, oh, this flippant little story that we find in John 9. No, this is real pain, real suffering for a family and for a man that has lived a large portion of his life without sight. And Jesus says, it's not because he did anything wrong. It's not because his parents did anything wrong, specifically, but rather so that the works of God might be displayed in his life, in him, in him. So he's, to say, he's saying to his disciples, turn away from your fixation on the causality uh, as the, you know, like the decisive explanation of suffering. Turn away from any surrender to futility or absurdity or chaos or meaninglessness, right? Because people, we either just avoid this topic or if we try to go down this rabbit hole, we will be convinced that life is, is meaningless and it is just chaos and, and there's no real point, there's no real meaning and we should just get the best of it that we can, right? Jesus says, don't, don't do either one of those, right? Turn away from those and instead turn to the purposes and the plans of God. And Jesus says, about this man who was born blind. That there's no child, there's no suffering that is outside of God's purposes. Now that is not an easy truth to just smile and high five and walk out of here with. It's just not. But it's what Jesus gives us. And though it's not easy, it's actually good. It's, good, it's a good word from our good Savior in the midst of this broken world. He said, it's not this man that sinned or his parents. The blindness came about in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. So in John 9, we're, Jesus is about to do something. It's going to be awesome. He's going to heal this guy. But there isn't always healing, is there? There isn't always healing. So what do we do then, right? Then what, what's the purpose? If there's not healing, then what, what was the, how am I supposed to see purpose and find purpose in really hard things and suffering? Well, this is not the only story, the only uh, place that the Bible speaks to suffering. The book of Job would be uh, the biggest um, unpacking of that. And it does not leave us with the, <laughs> quite the, the tied up bow that we would like either. But Paul, in the New Testament, will talk about a similar thing. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about a suffering that he experienced. And it's not that Paul just loved it, because he pleaded that God would take it from him. But God gave him an answer. Not so much, he actually gives him a little bit of the why, but more the purpose. He says this in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 12. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. So Paul knows that God has used him mightily and is using him mightily and has given him words. So to keep Paul from becoming conceited and puffed up and ruin his ministry, God does something. He gives him a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what this thorn is. There's a lot of speculation about it. Bottom line is it's some form of physical suffering that Paul doesn't 
and joy. You just need to know that. He, calls, he says, it's a messenger of Satan sent to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Okay? So back to the conversation about, man, you must be suffering because you've sinned in some way, and if you would repent of that sin, then that suffering would go away. Well, I just want to go ahead and hold up the Apostle Paul as an example that any of us are probably going to fall short of and see what he does here. He says, I prayed three times, pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But did God take it from him? No. So you're going to tell, and I think that's actually what I said back in that room in college, was like, bro, you're going to tell Paul that? He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, because Paul was suffering, and he, and he prayed and asked God to take it from him, and God didn't. And so I'm not going to accuse the Apostle Paul of unrepentant sin, just because, like, no, I don't think I want to go there. And right here, Paul says that God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Does anybody else? Is that what it says on your Facebook profile or your Insta, wherever, you, wherever we have bios now? Insta or whatever. You put that. Really get a kick out of suffering. Let me tell you about persecutions and calamities. But Paul has been able to lean into the purpose as he sees, man, when I am weak, that's when I experience Christ's strength at its greatest measure. And so Paul has realized that in some way that wouldn't be true otherwise, when he is suffering, when he is struggling, and God still works through him, and he still has joy in spite of that, that God's power is on display, and, and both for Paul in his own sufferings, but also for the people that Paul is ministering to. So we're about to see a healing here in John 9. And it's easy whenever we can get the healing to say, oh, that's what God was doing. Praise God for that. I'm, you know, but when we don't get the healing, it can be a little more difficult to not go back to that rut of asking, what are you doing here, God? Why don't you care about me? Why, why, why? Jesus is inviting us to lift our heads beyond the why. Why did it happen? And instead ask the question, what is God going to do through this? What is his purpose? So healing displays the works of God in John 9, and his sustaining grace displays the work of God in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But what's common in both of the cases is the supreme value of the glory of God. You see, we have for ourselves the supreme value in our life. You got to fill in the blank, but it's some form of comfort, isn't it? It's some form of you know, temporal pleasure that comes through people thinking that we are filling the blank or that we are just comfortable, monetary gains or whatever. When the supreme value of our life is in something of this world, then suffering will absolutely never ever make sense and you will never ever rejoice in it. When your supreme value is attached to something temporal, something in this world, your reputation, your salary, your relationship, your kid's reputation, then it's never going to be something you are able to lean into God's goodness whenever you suffer and when you struggle. 
because your supreme value is in something else. But when our supreme value is in the glory of God, then whether he heals us or whether he allows it to remain, his glory is on display. The blindness is for the glory of God. The thorn in the flesh is for the glory of God. The healing is for his glory. And the non-healing is for his glory. Suffering can only have ultimate meaning in relationship to God. So, in Jesus' answer, he affirms God's sovereignty and his goodness in the midst of this tension. But in this story, he doesn't leave us hanging because he's about to go ahead and show us exactly why this man was born blind. You see, sometimes whenever the healing doesn't come, we have to wait longer in life or when we get to heaven to realize how God used our suffering that he didn't bring a healing to on this side of the world. He will bring healing, church. Y'all know that, right? He's making all things new. He's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. That's a huge, big, bold statement. And it's not just a statement. Jesus has proved it when he got back up out of the grave. This is the work that he's doing. So we can know that that is coming. We will be healed. It's not a question of if. It's really a question of when. But when we don't get it on this side of eternity, it can be difficult. But here, Jesus is going to show us exactly why he allowed this man to be born blind and why he allowed him to be in this place at this moment as a beggar so Jesus could do a miracle through him. This miracle is incredible. Uh, we kind of get used to Jesus doing miracles, don't we? Uh, but, uh, but here's the deal. This is going to be a miracle that never before is, is recorded in Scripture or in history medically that someone born blind has received their sight back. But, but it was indeed prophesied biblically that this would be something that the Messiah did, that he would give sight to those who had never had it. So this is proof of his messiahship. But it's also relevant to the recent conflict and to the message of John. Remember, he's been talking about that he is the light of the world. He's going to say that again today, but he's been talking about that around this festival of booths, right? Where they, they've, they've been talking about what God has done in the, in the past. And, and um, Jesus is coming into this context where they've been celebrating that and saying, that's me. I am the light of the world. So he shows them Again, all this read in context that the religious rituals that they've been given were meant to point to something greater, that they were all to point the people to the coming of the Savior who would be the true light, the one that was the light of the world, who made the world. That, that one, remember John chapter 1? Remember what great lengths John went to to make sure that we knew who he was about to introduce us to? talking about him being the creator and the light of the world and the one who sustains the world and it all holds together. You remember that back in John 1? This is the one who has stepped into the world now that is on display, that is having these actual conversations with these religious leaders, that is actually healing these people with actual suffering. That light of the world was coming into the darkness of the world and the darkness has not overcome it. Remember that from John 1? And he's come to remake the world, to remake his creation through his redemptive power. So Jesus says, that's why this man's here today without his sight. So that Jesus could show why he was here, which was to bring sight to a whole world of blindness. You're going to see that this miracle is not simply about this man. But it's an illustration of what the entire world is in need of. Nobody was pretending they didn't know what that man's need was. He's blind. He's blind, so he can't work. He can't work, he can't feed himself. He needs sight, but nobody can give him sight. 
Jesus is holding this up for us as the truth that actually exists in all of us. We're not as aware, as we'll see next week, of our need and our blindness. But it's no less miraculous, the healing that we need. So Jesus is about to show us his glory. It's not for political gain, right? It's not for the overturning of an oppressive Roman government, right? That's what they're all wondering. When's the Messiah going to come and do those things? But it's for something far bigger, for spiritual victory, for the overturning of the kingdom of darkness. That's what Jesus is here for. You see, we set our sights way too low when we're asking Jesus to do something for us. We want him to solve this problem that's just about our life. And Jesus is saying, I got eternity in mind. I'm doing things that you don't even know to ask for because they're so beyond your scope of view. These people are, are they're anxious for the Messiah, but they're anxious primarily for what it'll do in their life. They want somebody to come and overthrow Rome. We're tired of being ruled by Rome. When's the Messiah going to come? And so they have the short-sighted gain. So they're looking at Jesus' miracles going, man, could he be the guy? Could he, maybe, like he's got a crowd now. Maybe we can make him king and he, we could make an actual run for this thing. That's how they're viewing it. But Jesus is not coming after that. Rather, he's coming after the whole kingdom of darkness. Amen? The whole spiritual forces of this world. The very thing that fuels the darkness and suffering and the pain that you feel in this world. That's what Jesus is coming for. It's not just the simple everyday stuff that is so frustrating and is so hard, but rather it is the eternal hope beyond death and the grave and suffering. That's what Jesus has his eyes on. That's what he's coming forward to show the world that this is what the Messiah is actually here to do. It was prophesied that he would give sight to the blind, that he would be a great light. But Jesus says, all right, we've got to do this quickly. Verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, because the night is coming when no one can work. Jesus says we've got to do this before his earthly ministry is over, because Jesus is going to turn from a ministry of healing to a ministry of dying. Jesus will turn from the day work of relieving suffering to the night work of suffering himself. He will finally submit totally to the plan of his father and he will be swallowed up by the sin and the suffering of the world. Jesus already has that in view. He says, right now this is my ministry to do this healing, but one day soon my ministry will be to do the dying. And this is what he's reminding them of and this miracle shows, or serves to show us what it means for the world as he steps in. So now let's get to the story, right? So in verse Five, he says, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. That's the, that's the proclamation, and, let, and now he's just going to prove that for us. Okay, having said these things, what's he do? We got any junior high boys in here? Raise your hand. What's he do, Sawyer? What's the next verse say? Having said these things, Jesus does what? Somebody help him out. Spit! He just spits on the ground. How many of your parents would let you spit on the ground? They'd be like, popping you in the back of the head. You don't spit in public. That's gross. Just spits on the ground. But now I need you to go ahead and think about this. Because even if you do spit on the ground, how much spit does it take to get enough mud to be able to put it on somebody's eyes? Have you ever thought about this? I'm picturing a scene from Ace Ventura. You probably shouldn't. It's a lot of spit. I think Jesus caused a scene to get enough spit on the ground to make mud that was enough. Like, I'm just telling you, try it later. We have a family project after church. This is what he does. He spits on the ground, and then we just skip over this, how much it took 
saliva to, to make mud, but whatever. He spits on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Some of you are like, well, the ground was already wet. No, he made the mud with his saliva. That's what the Bible says. So he makes mud. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he says, all right, now go wash in that pool over there. His name's Siloam. It means scent. This is an incredible story. He says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went, and he washed, and he came back seeing. What? No, he didn't. And that's what all the neighbors are going to say. Uh-uh. Right? Later, they're like, is that the guy? Nah, it's got to be his doppelganger. Can't be. Looks like him. No way. Because this doesn't make any sense. That wasn't a common prescription. Nobody else has given that one out. Spit, mud, eyes, wash. Go. It's never worked before. You is it funny to anybody else? Jesus doesn't heal people the same way all the time. Right? This is my, this is my favorite way. This is, why my, this is why it's my favorite story. I just love it. Right? It's funny. And it's amazing because he heals him. It's like, it's just not just a simple miracle. So beyond the funny, there's this beautiful connections and relevance to the theme of John. This is the transcendent one. John made sure we knew that as we got into the gospel of John in chapter 1. This is the one who was there in the beginning that spoke... He spoke the world into existence. He used his words and created the galaxies. Your mind needs to be blown. Because if it's not blown by that power, then the significance of him stepping into our mess and getting his hands dirty for our healing won't mean the same to you. But this is the one, the transcendent one, who spoke the world into existence and if you follow the Genesis narrative, he speaks it, speaks it, there's day, there's night, speaks it, there's the world, speaks it, there's the animals, he speaks it, speaks it, speaks it, speaks it, speaks it, until he comes to man. And then what does he do? God gets down with the dirt, and he makes man from the ground. Did he spit then? I don't know. But he makes, he makes Adam. Y'all know, okay, maybe y'all don't know this. In Genesis 2, he makes Adam from the dirt. Everything else he spoke into existence. He gets his hands dirty when it comes to his image-bearing creation. And now here he is coming to this world, the world that we've made a mess of. God's not responsible for this mess. The problem of suffering at large is because of our sin. And yet, here he is, once again, to get his hands dirty. But this time, it's for the purpose of new creation. It's for the purpose of recreation. See, he could have just spoke the word. We've seen Jesus heal from, like, miles away. Y'all remember that? Story of the young man, like, guy comes, hey, can you heal my, my kid? And Jesus goes, it's been done. And he goes back home, and they realize at the moment Jesus spoke it, that kid's sickness went away. Jesus doesn't need to get his hands dirty, but he is, right? He's showing us something about the work that he's doing, the recreation. Here he is to get his hands dirty in the work of making us new. He cares about 
his image bearers. He cares about humanity. And this is a picture of what it's going to cost him to bring about salvation for us. See, he could have just spoke the man and given him, spoke to him and given him a sight. We've seen him heal like this, but when it comes to creating man, he used his hands with the dirt. He formed us. So here, when he's recreating, he uses his hands once again. This is the creator with his creation, with new life, with miraculous healing. Miraculous sight is given when there is no way. That could, it could have been restored at the hands of man. This is Jesus' mission. There's no way that man is going to get it. Caleb walked us through that last week. We're just not, not on our own. Nobody could give this man his sight back, and Jesus does it. And he says, this is what I was sent for. He says, i got to do this work of him who sent me while it is day. This is what he is sent for. So to make the story even better... What's the name of the pool that he sends this guy to go wash in? It's Salome, and it means what? Sent. Right? So it's beautiful because he shows us the way that he intends to recreate is by being sent. The saving, like, he's, he's the saving people who have no hope of saving themselves are being sent out. So we are saved. Here this man is saved by the sent one, and then he's going to be sent out by the sent one. This is the gospel, that, that we are saved by Jesus who was sent by God to do our salvation. And then after he saves us, he sends us out. So what about us? Is this just a good story about Jesus making mud with his saliva? Or was this just about this man? Or was it even just about his disciples and the questions that they had? I want you to remember why John wrote the book. I don't know if we've referenced it in a few weeks. But in John chapter 20, he, he tells us, I wrote this so that you would believe. Believe in Jesus. This is one of the signs that John records. John says he's did so many, I can't write them all down. There wouldn't be enough, there's not enough ink and not enough pages, and I don't have enough time. But he's recorded these so that we would believe. And, it, and it's not just for these people in this moment, but for all peoples in all times, this story is recorded so that it would matter in our life in, in much the same way that it mattered for the disciples, even in much the same way that it mattered for this man who was born blind. But we got to let it matter. we got to actually ask the hard questions about life, specifically around suffering. The most natural question is to ask why. And some of you haven't thought about it. You've pushed it out of your mind. You're hoping you don't have to. Or because you are suffering or you have suffered or someone you love has suffered. You're asking why. And you're wondering, what did I do? Or what did they do? Or why me? Why them? Well, I want to remind you, the explanation for the blindness lies not in the past causes, but rather in future purposes. This man is going to be used mightily in just a short story. We don't know much about the rest of his life, but immediately after this, he's not a blind beggar sitting on the ground anymore. He's up and about walking, and that people start to go, whoa, 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 isn't that him? And they're like, yeah, I think it's him. No, it can't be him, right? And, and it causes this whole trial deal, and they're like, dude, aren't you the guy? And he's like, yeah, that's me. Well, how are you seeing? Well, Jesus did this. They're like, no way. 
no way. He's like, it can't be you. Somebody just looks like you. He's like, no, it's me. It's me. It's me. I promise. In the rest of this chapter, he's going to have to keep saying, no, I promise. I'm that guy. I don't know what he did, but I don't know how he did it other than mud and washing, but I can see now. So I don't, like this guy's like, I don't understand why we're all on trial with this guy. He just did a good thing. And they're like, well, what do you think about him? He's like, I don't know. He's a prophet, which I think he's just saying, like, he's from God. Why do we need to question this? He just did a good thing. It's an amazing thing. Nobody else can do this. So we see the purpose in his life. But many of us haven't got there yet. We don't know the purpose in our life for why suffering has happened. So I really feel compelled by the Lord, because this wasn't in my original notes this morning, to just share with you, uh, as I look in this next chapter of my life, I could see God's purposes for some of the hard things in my life previously. So if you've been around the journey for a while, you know my story. If you haven't, I'm not trying to be dramatic, I promise. It's just, I think it's helpful, and I want you to ask the same questions about your own story. But one of the questions, like, one of the things that I could spend time balling me up if I let it was why my dad just acted like I didn't exist 20 miles down the road from him for the first 16 years of my life. Right? Like, why? He raised two girls. Why not me? I'm going to be honest with you. There's no great answer to that. I can get real pretzled up about it if I'm wondering what caused this. But as I look ahead at what God has done in my life, I could see, A, God wanted to show that his power and his grace is sufficient to heal a young man that didn't have a dad. But secondly, he knew that he was going to call me into a work of foster care where I get to show up for two other little guys whose dad have decided that they don't exist either. That's not fair about one of them, but it's a complicated story. Nonetheless, I get to step in and be used by God to show his glory, not mine, his glory, in the, in the midst of hard things. I got asked the same question about being molested as a kid. Why? Why did that happen? Lord, why me? But now I see purpose that God had for me in ministry, to give me a heart to see people beyond their struggles, to have empathy and patience with people who struggle with addiction or other things in their life as a result of the trauma that they went through. Yeah, I get that. So I see, and now I get to advocate for kiddos and healing who have gone through far worse things than me. Okay, Lord. I see why. I see what you're doing. I see what the purpose is. Does that make those things easy? No. Does it make them used for his glory? Indeed. Indeed. So how about you? Because more than just my purpose in ministry, 
Because if I never did a lick of ministry to help another person, God's purposes are still revealed in my story when he says, look at what I saved. Look at, look at how I saved him. So your story may not have dramatic dips and whatever in it, but you should ask yourself, Has your life changed because of Jesus? And if it has, how is he using that going forward? Or maybe a better question is, how is he wanting to use that presently right now in your story, with your family, with your work, with your whatever? How does he want to be using your story for his glory, regardless of what your story is? You need to ask those questions. Face the hard things in your life, in your story, in the people that you love. And instead of pulling away and putting God on trial about whether he's good or not, lean into him and ask him to help you see what it is that he's going to use that for his glory. How is he going to use that for his glory? I want to ask you a final question. How do you see, how do you view Jesus Because the disciples had the pleasure of just asking him, hey, Jesus, what's going on with this? It's a hard thing. But some of us don't get to go to Jesus that way. And, you, and part of it's because you don't see him as somebody you can run to with those kinds of questions. So how do you view Jesus? Do you see him as a good savior? That has made a way for you to approach him with questions like that? Do you believe when the Bible says we get to approach him with boldness? In our time of need, not boldness to declare what we've done, you know, burst into the throne room of Jesus, I'm here. No, we boldly approach in our time of need. Do you believe you get to do that? You believe he's a compassionate savior that's approachable, that he's warm to you? Or does he seem disconnected, cold, and absent? Is there personal stuff with you that you haven't released to him? I want you to ask that question. Is there personal stuff in your own story and in your own life that, that you haven't released to him and that that is actually keeping you from drawing near? You're pretending you're okay. You're pretending it's not affecting you. You're pretending it didn't really matter when in reality it's keeping you from going to Jesus. And do you see him as able? Let this story be a display of his power. Amen. What a good display of Jesus' power. I'm wondering, though, do you believe that that's the same Jesus you get to ask stuff of? That he has that kind of power? That he would use it in your life? Again, the answer might be, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And God uses that. To this day, we're talking about the Apostle Paul and how he served Jesus faithfully in the midst of crazy suffering. So yeah, God used Paul's suffering. And here, God used this guy's healing. I don't know which ending on this earth you get, but either way, it's for his glory. This is hard, but if we'll lean in and release it to him, and it's okay. He's okay with us asking why. He is. 
And he's not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us. He's going to stay with us, even when our hearts are broken. And he's going to use our stories somehow for his glory. One day we will rejoice in our sufferings. Let's pray. Father God, may we be a room full of people that live in such a way that the world asks us what in the world is up with that person. How can they do this or go through that and not be hard-hearted, bitter, resentful, or whatever? Use us in such a way that we get to have conversations, much like verse 25. Whether he's a sinner or not, here's what I know. I was blind and now I see. And Jesus is to thank for that. So I pray, Lord, that you would break through for those of us that have put up walls around parts of our heart that we don't believe you're actually able to deal with or kind enough to deal with, that we can trust you. Would you break through that? Jesus, I don't, I don't know everybody's story, but I believe your word, and you're the same God, kind, compassionate, and really powerful. Make us into a people that believe that, and we get to live by that. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Hey, y'all, come. Respond to Jesus however he's leading you. Our pastors will be on the edge here. They'd love to pray with you. Somebody